Hey, welcome. I'm Peter Snowart of What's On Your Mind and What's In Your Heart. Today, I give you another English episode and it's What's On Your Mind. We have one of the co-founders of Colibra. Colibra is actually originally a Belgian-founded company in Brussels, which has more than 1,000 persons working there. It's called Unicorn, which means that it has a valuation of more than 1 billion euros. And I talk with Stein. I talk about what they're actually doing, because it's not clear. Um, the impact of uh, generative AI, so JetGPT on the technology, and all the personal lessons and insights that he has learned throughout the 15 years of starting the company with a couple of people and now being one of the, the C-level persons and managing managing between brackets, thousand people. Enjoy staying. Welcome to What's On Your Mind with Peter Snowart. Every week a guest talks about his or her story and that story can inspire you to change your own. Here's Peter. Hi, Stein. <laughs> hey, Peter. Hey. Now we're going to immediately dive into the core. And um, Colibra is uh, one of the Belgian unicorns. Congratulations. 15 years in a row. Um, still alive. More than 1,000 people. I'm going to start with the most simple question there is. What the hell does or offer Colibra? Because it's not 100% clear. It's something with data, but bring us into what Calibra is doing or offering to the world, Stein? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, uh, hi, Peter, and thanks for having me over. Um, and you are on the money, uh, as a matter of fact, when it comes to the 15 years of Calibra, because June 19th uh, will be Calibra's 15th birthday. Uh, so um, it's been quite a ride, and we've seen a lot of things over those 15 years, as you can imagine. And one of the challenges we've been having as, as, a, as a company uh, is that people find it relatively hard to understand what it is that we are offering or doing. Um, and I believe that be, that's because we have for years already now a category creation strategy, which means that what we do is um, create a new type of software. Uh, so in that sense, it's hard to fit into, well, are you like a data warehouse or are you like a database or are you like a, a visualization tool? Well, we are a data intelligence piece of software. And that's the software category that we are creating, that we have been creating for 15 years. And that we'll probably continue to create for the next uh, decade. And I'll explain a little bit what it is, right? But as a comparison, you could say, okay, try to explain to something what an ERP system is when the category of ERP didn't exist yet. Or try to explain to something what a CRM system is and you've never done CRM things, and the category of software doesn't exist. So within 10 years, our category will hopefully be mainstream as well, uh, and we'll continue to make that happen. But essentially what we do, data intelligence, um, is connecting the uh, data all the way to the algorithms, insights, people, and ultimately outcomes. Uh, so from data to the outcomes. Uh, and the software that we offer is called the Data Intelligence Cloud, and that's what we call a system of engagement for the data assets. Just like you have IT assets, right, like your phones or your desktops, uh, desktop computers in large organizations. And to manage that at scale, you have a system of engagement, like a service now, right? To manage your pipeline or your sales assets at scale, you have a CRM system, which allows you to have all of the people with their different roles to collaborate around the same sales assets. And this is now happening with data as well. Data is becoming so important um, already for more than 15 years, but uh, will continue on in my view. Um, and again, for organizations to manage that data asset at scale, uh, they need a system of engagement for the data asset. And that is the position that Calibra takes in the market. Now, now you heard so, me, so, right? But whether you understood yeah. me is another matter, right, Peter? You have, a, you have a clue as to what we do by now. Uh, no, can you give me um, <laughs> like like a? But of course, I understand, but it still sounds very. You sound like a Eckhart Tolle of data or or something like that. So I have two questions. The first one is: Can you can you give me a typical use case of a customer that 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 um, that a use case of how they implemented Colibra um, to make it really tactical? And the second question is. 
I mean, you're talking about we exist 15 years, as you know, um, sometimes an idea or a technology can just wipe out a complete industry um, mm -hmm. in a couple of years. I mean, the, the cliche of an, uh, an Instagram um, replacing a Kodak and um, the same for the, the video uh, renting uh, shops, mm -hmm. which has been uh, replaced by, by the Netflixes. I mean, there is a, a small technology called generative AI uh, or ChatGPT as an example, which is um, hyped at the moment. And uh, although everybody thinks this is brand new, it's, it's AI exists already since 75 from the, the previous mm -hmm. century. What is the impact of AI? Is it going? Is it an, a comp competitor of yours, or going to embrace that technology and upgrade the Calibra tech stack uh, into God's mode? Two questions in one. I know. Yes, uh, indeed. So two questions. I'll take the generative AI second, right? That hype that's ongoing right now. I would say AI, like you said correctly, has had its winters and its summers. And now it's having another summer, a quite hot one. But we'll get back to that in a minute. Um, first, the use case you said, right? That was the first mm -hmm. question. Um, so I'll, I'll pick one and we'll, we'll do it as a little game, Peter, because I've learned that that's an easy way to get people to understand what we do. And then I'll fan out to all the other use cases that our customers do with our software. So um, play with me for just a second, 30 seconds. Uh, and imagine that you work in a large organization. You take a large bank, telco, hospital, government, what have you, right? They have a lot of data all over the place. Um, now, if you work in an organization like that, I will bet with you that uh, it's easier for you to buy a book online. You know, you can go to ball.com, you can go to amazon.com, and you can buy a book, and it's there next day on your doorstep. Maybe it's even the same day. But if you... Um, are in a large organization, it's easier to do that than to find your own data in your own organization. Uh, and that's because those organizations, they don't have a place where they can go and search for data. They start asking other people, their friends in the company, they're emailing them, they're slacking or teamsing them, calling them. They're literally navigating tribal knowledge to hopefully get to the right data, question mark. And what Calibra does, or one of the use cases that our customers do with us is, we offer them a catalog where this large organization can um, uh, and, uh, register and display as in a sort of marketplace their data assets. So just like you buy a book online, you can now go into your organization's data catalog and say, okay, where's my customer data? Or where's this or that or the other? And it's an extension, not just data, but also data products, but that's uh, another matter. Um, and that's one use case. Because it turns out what's been happening in large organizations, they've been buying data things for years, right? They bought data warehouses 20 years ago. They bought data platforms 10 years ago. Now they're buying cloud data warehouses. They bought all sorts of other databases and, and so on and so forth. Um, but if you look at what the organization then struggles with, is they, they don't have a problem setting up this data warehouse, for example, right? They don't have a problem putting data in it. Uh, quite the contrary. Now the business is asking, what is in my data lake? And that's why they want to put a catalog on top of it. And they don't just put the catalog on top of that one store of data, but they have tens or dozens or hundreds or thousands of databases and data warehouses. And the catalog sits over all of those because, you know, for a business user, you don't really care if the data is in warehouse X or database Y. You care that you can actually start doing stuff with the data and you want to find it as fast as possible. That's a catalog. Um, Calibra has governance cases uh, around roles and responsibilities around the data, who is actually the owner of the data. Uh, the data marketplace, trusted business supporting, cloud data migration. I mean, there's literally dozens of use cases we have together with our customers. And that's normal because once the customer starts to use our platform, they typically use it for a first internal audience, maybe the data stewards or the data scientists or people from legal and, and privacy, for example, or other stakeholders. And when they have adoption with those champions with that use case, for example, of cataloging, then they say, okay, who else should we turn into a data champion? Who else is a data citizen in this company that we should be servicing with this platform? And then it fans out into a whole roadmap of use cases. So it's like a new way of working with the data assets. Does that help a little bit more? Yes, yes. And then right. I'm going to, before I let you go to the second question, then a new question pops up. 
I mean, is then because I really believe that um, a lot of companies are making these huge projects based on three principles, or is it going to re- add uh, extra revenue streams? Is it going to um, um, cut cut costs, Save costs? Or, is, yeah. or, or, or is it going to um, make sure that I'm compliant, yeah? especially banks and things like that? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I assume then that the, that most of these cases start with a kind of pain of, like you mentioned the, the privacy one. I mean, th- that's a compliancy case for me that, that it's really, yeah, that they have difficult because they have a kind of a litigation case and then they have to pop up all the data and they cannot find all the right data. And it's, it's a very manual task, labor task to get all the right data in to, to make a case. Is that correct? Um, so why do companies do that, right? Like, are they trying to make money, save costs or, um, you know, be compliant? I'll explain mm-hmm. that from the angle of, of maybe the chief data officer. So 15 years of Calibra mm-hmm. and also roughly 15 years of that new data boss role that has been coming into existence. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I'm not going to claim that Calibra created the role or that we made it grow necessarily. We were just in the market at that same time, which is a little bit of an accident, but also um, a happy one, of course. Um, and uh, the first generation, now I'm quoting from Gartner, right? So they've done a study on this, and we've literally we've seen that happen. So the first generation of the chief data officer, the boss of that data asset, um, they were very compliance-driven. Uh, they were in the biggest banks in the world. There was BCBS 239, some re- regulation. Uh, there was a response to the 2008 crisis, and they literally said, okay, banks, obviously you don't know what your risk reporting looks like. You don't know where the data comes from or what your counterparty risk is. So, you know, put a chief data officer in place, start doing data governance, start doing data quality, because you need to bring transparency and control around your data assets. All the biggest banks started to do that, smaller banks followed, and so on and so forth. And then it fell into all industries. So first generation. Now, this is a stack of uh, talent skills that you need for that role. So the second generation was more offensive. How do I actually, as a chief data officer, help the organization to make money with data? Uh, and then you have the third generation, which is how do I support digital transformation programs? And currently, that's still today, you have the fourth generation. Remember, it's a stack of talent. So if you're starting now as a CDO, you still have to do the compliance things. They're not going to go away. I mean, privacy is increasing. AI regulation is upcoming, so there's a lot more reasons to be compliant. But you want to partner with your privacy counterparts and legal or your security people. But the fourth generation is all about data products. You know, how can I put a wrapper around data? How can I package it, sell the data directly, or package it in an AI model, or sell the insights directly? Um, how can I help the business make money and put you know a, a data product? For me, I literally call it the shortest conceptual distance between the data and the dollar or the euro or the whatever, right? So do people do this for cost savings, making money or being compliant? I would say they're doing it for all three. But because of historical reasons, I would argue uh, you still see a lot uh, of initiatives that have a priority around compliance. Um, And I always challenge that because if you get stuck or you overcommit your resources on only the compliance side, you're sort of three generations behind already and you're just starting out. So I always try to move people up into the stack and try to get them to focus on the data products because that's where the value is to be had, right? And if they want to justify their existence in an organization, they need to contribute, right? Budgets are under pressure. They need to save costs, uh, but also they need to find new ways to make money. Um, so yeah. that's my elaborate answer to your, um, which mm-hmm. one is it question? All of them. Yeah, it's a very interesting one because um, in in order to monetize the data, I mean, there is in the digital transformation um, era, I would call it, there is this kind of personalization where where a lot of companies try to give you a personalized experience um, so that they are not going to sell any, um, I don't know, lingerie to me as a a 48 um, male because they are aware of of all the data and all the all the things that I ever bought with that company, so mm. which which actually makes my the experience with that company 
more optimized. So <coughs> it's an interesting one. Now, but the thing is, the second part of the question is the the AI thing. I mean, mm-hmm. if I would have been at a distance, like a CEO looking at Calibra, knowing nothing about data, like data, we have to do some data as a new gold, blah, 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 stuff. Mm-hmm. I would then say, but Calibra, I mean, isn't AI or GPT? I mean, like uh, ChatGPT has been bought, I believe, by Microsoft, uh, what is it, by 8 million or whatever it was, a, a billion. Um, I mean, wh- where, where's your spot there? Is it competition? Is it is it an extra feed into Colibra? Or, or how, what's your take on that, Stein? Um, so I have an elaborate take. Um, so if you permit me a couple of minutes of rambling as I think out loud. Um, I think it's a great opportunity, but you have to put it in the right context, right? Because we know AI for a long time, you know, and most of the old AI that's pre-November 2022 is now considered not AI anymore, at least in the mainstream perception in the world. It's still AI, right? But they feel a little bit sidelined almost. Um, And uh, what happened in November is that indeed the large language models were unleashed upon the world to the mainstream public by uh, OpenAI. And soon after, like every week, there's literally new stuff coming out. It, it was only a month ago, Google I.O. and all Sundar Pichai was talking about, CEO of Google. He was like, okay, we have a Vertex database and we have the Palm model and we have this and that and the other. And if you follow this, it's literally every week something new is coming out. So you're looking at massive creative destruction, but also a complete change in perception because AI is now being equalized to uh, generative AI or large language models. So that's like a a subsection of AI, but this is the one that everybody talks about. I mean, you can do it yourself, Peter. I did a Google Trends analysis. It's a very simple one. You go back worldwide to 2014 and you put two topics in there. You put the topic of Bitcoin and you put the topic of um, artificial intelligence. And then you literally see two spikes of Bitcoin. That was when your uncle and your aunt and your nephew at Christmas, everybody was talking about Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And the same thing happened in November of last year. Everybody started to talk about, I mean, you're you're going to the the bakery, boom, they're talking about generative AI. They talk about AI, but they mean the generative AI thing. And I think the exciting thing about the technology is that it has indeed uh, done something that previously was... You know, the domain of only a few experts that now has been democratized to everybody. I mean, you don't even need to have been to school anymore. They'll teach you this stuff in school. And that's important because whether you're a lawyer writing contracts or in marketing, writing out marketing emails or writing documentation or a coder making SQL or Java code or anything else, right? All these languages can be generated. And I don't know about you, Peter, right? But if, if I need to create something new, I open up a Google Docs or a Word document and I'm looking at this empty page and the procrastination hits me. Like, oh, the fear of the empty page. And now I can just say, well, you know, give me something to start from. Um, and this is where I would caution also the audience a little bit because for me, AI right now is a little bit like ask an intern, right? So when you ask, hey, write me a legal text, the intern, right, the AI, is going to come back with something and it might look, you know, good and professional and eloquent and you can, you know, turn it into pirate style that everything is ARR or something like that, right? So it's, but it needs to be interactive. So like you would challenge an intern, hey, you're missing this, you're missing that, are you sure about this? You would also, in that interaction, in that dialogue, the prompts, you would also challenge the AI to complete it. And then you still, you're going to have to, check it yourself and fact check it, right? So that's that's really important if you want to get real value out of it. But in essence, this means this is um, uh, productivity, right? So this is efficiency gains of, for coders so they could maybe work 10, 30% more efficient because they can now ask it to, you know, create a whole scaffolding of pre-existing code that actually runs. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of efficiency gains for all knowledge workers in all organizations. So I would argue... If you're not using this today in an organization or, you know, this year or next year, you don't have to hurry necessarily, right? But at the same time, you're going to have to use it at some point in time. Just like the organization learned to use phones and computers and the internet, it made you more productive. Hopefully, this will do that too for you. But you got to start practicing with it. And I think that for organizations, that's a big challenge because it's a massive creative destruction. 
every week something new is coming out. So like I was trying this last week and it's already invalid. So it's hard to plan right now. You got to experiment and look at what the big vendors like a Microsoft or a Google or an Amazon or a Databricks or Snowflake, what those players are doing really. Um, now, how does it play for us? For us, it's just another great opportunity. Uh, I always compare AI a little bit to Pac-Man and the little the little nuggets, right, to data. Little Pac-Man cannot operate if he's not eating the data. I mean, you're literally training AI on data. And yes, those large language models have been pre-trained on the internet of data, if you will. But for your specific domain, you know, in a hospital or in a bank or in your part of the business, you probably have additional data that you can then train it on or fine-tune it on or add to it or have the large language model talk to the thing. Um, so for us, you know, it's yet another business driver in the market that um, will um, make organizations be more diligent about their data assets, take more care of it, not treat it as an exhaust, but really as an asset. And again, that's our, that's our business. So in that sense, it's yet another business driver in the market. Uh, and especially if you add the regulation onto it that's upcoming. I mean, just this week, there was a vote, I believe, from in the EU. Uh, they voted on the, on the AI regulation, so it's going into this process, right? And probably by the end of the year, they expect it to be upvoted by all the member states. So let's say over the next three years, if an organization has any kind of AI in production, they want to classify it risk-wise according to four criteria, no risk. So, you know, not a lot, lot of controls needed. But then you have very high risk, like um, minority report stuff, the predictive policing. They're like, you can't do that. So that's illegal, right? So they have a system of, of classification that way. And organizations will have to put those models in production. They could have thousands of these models in production, but they're going to have to sort wrap controls around it and make sure that they don't put the ones in production that are illegal or out in the wrong risk classification. So again, this will cause ownership around the data asset that goes into the AI model, but also on the AI model itself, because that's a data product and data product need owners. So for us, this is good. Now, how is this for us as a software vendor? How can we use this technology? Well, uh, everybody's using it for, for something, right? Like Google is using it to generate a document, uh, like templates, but very rich ones. Uh, or Adobe is making, uh, you know, like a soup, like a magic lasso or whatever they call it, but then one that literally can comp auto-complete pictures based on a small one. So it's very impressive. And equally, uh, we're looking at this technology to do things for us that, um, you know, were hard to automate before or impossible to automate before. So, for example, it can do metadata generation, right? Because stewards often have to say, what does this table mean? What does this data mean? And now, you know, again, the ask an intern can come up with something and say, well, you have a blank page, but I think here's something. To, I mean, it's customer data, so it's probably about customers, yada, 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 right? So it gives you something to start from. Uh, or SQL generation, for example. You're sitting in that catalog, you're shopping for the data, and then the catalog also can then tell you, well, hey, you want to start playing with that data a little bit because I can run a few queries for you if you want. So those are things that, you know, I wouldn't say they were impossible before, but their performance would be abysmal. So you wouldn't, you would just mm -hmm. not use it. It would be like a, like a clippy, you know, remember from 20 years ago? No. Nope. A, 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 a widget, right? Um, so that's how we look at it uh, as a business opportunity in the market, but also as a new capability that we can use to make our own software better and automate more for our users. Hope that helps okay. a little bit. Yeah. Now I'm going to go up a little bit. We're going to go meta. I mean, um, I assume we share the same young age-ish. Uh, I mean... Um, You've been 15 years with, with Colibra, one of the founders. And um, I wonder, I mean, 15 years ago, maybe it's because uh, I'm being nostalgic or romantic. It seemed like uh, 15 years ago was 23, uh, 2008. 2008. So YouTube, yeah, YouTube just started. Uh, what was it called? Right. I think 2006. AWS was also started. Um, <coughs> which was in the beginning 
And I still remember looking at YouTube. I remember that time very vividly. And I was like, yeah, it's technology to put cat videos on. I mean, hmm? this video mm. is going mm. to be on YouTube. So, I mean, the use case and, and the commodity of YouTube, my son is watching YouTube more. He's never watching t television. I think he will never, the VRT or VTM or whatever they called, it's not, it's not his thing anymore. It's YouTube. So it took already quite some time to really see the use case. And you, you had to be very visionary um, to, to, um, yeah, to, to understand that. I mean, there have been some interviews, I think 10 years mm -hmm. ago, when they asked people, would you ever going, would you consider um, using your phone? to answer emails and take pictures and things like that. No, never, right. never, never my privacy. And right now, I mean, literally people are tied with their, their mobile phones to their hands like zombies. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, how do you keep up with technologies? Because, I mean, 15 years ago, for me, it was pretty simple. It was clouds. It was just starting. There were like, there was the the, 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 the migration of client server to... Uh, um, centralized i mean i i thought it was more simpler in terms of technology whereas nowadays i mean you even have technology for sales and marketing where it used to be a pencil and a crm which was like salesforce.com mm. and that was it how how do you keep up i mean i mean the the whole ai storm for me i mean it I, i'm not going to say it went overnight but it 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 was like yeah, a snowball coming at me. It was like, what hell? What the hell happened here? Because I don't have enough. I I'm not in all the data to keep to keep up. It's because it's too much. It's mm -hmm. like in the 80s, I know every song, every intro. I can say that's that song. But nowadays, there is an overflow on music. You cannot be. I cannot, you know, every song anymore. And it's at least my feeling. So my question again to you, how do you keep up? How do you do that, Stain? Well, I think you have to be passionate about what you're doing. Uh, that helps mm -hmm. because it does take energy and attention. Uh, it also takes uh, evolution and growth and continuous learning. Um, but it is indeed not easy. I mean, if you look at what our customers are going through, they're large organizations and they're adopting technology at a certain rate typically a little bit slower because you know they mm -hmm. have to take into account their own processes etc but I, I can just name a few right you said the phone right you said like for example when it came to data we had the whole era of the the, the big data platforms uh, the hadoop stacks right and they were sort of yep. immediately leapfrogged by the, the cloud players and literally as you said with the the, the i story literally almost overnight um, a new type of database came into the world, the vector database, because those LLM models is just one portion of uh, uh, the AI bit. You also need to couple it with uh, other components like a vector database. I mean, look at it in the last six months. You, If you do vector database um, investment, you'll find two or three or I think four or five players that just got like $100 million, uh, only one this week. Uh, so literally, technology is always changing. And I think uh, our responsibility as a software company is to innovate. So, I mean, we have to innovate because we, there's new capabilities we can use in our software, but we also have to innovate because our catalog, you know, it, it needed to connect to the on-premise data warehouses in the olden days, if you will, right? But then it needed to connect to the Hadoop stacks and then it needed to connect, oh, I'm, I'm a bank, I also have like an old DB2 lying around somewhere and uh, some other stuff. But at the same time, hey, we have a snowflake and a data breaks and a BigQuery. We have all of those. So we always have to innovate. That's part of our um, uh, job, part of our DNA, I even, I would say. So you constantly have to um, uh, keep tabs on what's happening in the markets uh, and figure out if that's relevant also for your business because you can't do everything, obviously, or not everything at the same time. And um, I remember a quote there. Uh, from um, uh, Steve Ballmer, right, uh, one CEO of um, uh, Microsoft, uh, who, who then was uh, succeeded by uh, Satya Nadella, who's done an amazing yeah. job at uplifting uh, Microsoft and making them relevant again as a technology a player in every domain almost. Um, and I think the quote from Ballmer was that uh, technology companies are like sharks. sharks. So you know, sharks apparently they have to swim because that's how they get oxygen. If they don't 
swim if they don't keep moving they die and the same thing is true with a technology company if you don't keep innovating you die you just become obsolete because you're not with the times anymore i mean if all colibra did was hadoop stacks we would already be classified in legacy puppets right so we always have to evolve uh, for example we started with, um, uh, um, in an on-premise model uh, and then we went hosted and then we went into cloud and that's i think we started doing that already many many moons ago i mean when we were both still uh, nostalgic and romantic <laughs> now that, that's i find that a very interesting topic that you're now mentioning if you look at steve balmer that's the guy who was jumping like a madman on stage and yep, um yep. and and then indeed come uh Sajan Nadella, and he literally i mean he transformed the comp. He he um, made a copy of AWS, which is called the Azure Stack. Actually, three versions, which after the third version, in my personal opinion, is becoming now the biggest uh, hyperscaler there is. I mean, and um, and also the biggest contributor to to to, to Linux um, open source, which was in the past like the devil's blood uh, for Microsoft. Mm. And 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 now my question to you is because you're the founder, how can you navigate um, a company of thousands of persons into a new direction. That's one. And how? Because I think, I mean, we can say that Colibra through the line is successful. I mean, um, I think you will have a hard time today, like all uh, SaaS players in the market. Um, and um, yeah, you're, you want to, you need to project uh, always growing numbers to your investors. Um, but how i mean if you're successful the success can sometimes feel like cocaine that's is going to bring you into sleep and doesn't keep you sharp on your on your toes eh? i mean you're mentioning your corporate customers mm. indeed they're always they, they're not early adopters so they're always a little bit late uh by uh, adopting uh, new technologies um so again my question how do you keep yourself as a kind of a mindset how do you stay sharp and are you making sure that the success is not blinding you? Otherwise, say that the sun is not shining out of your ass because you're thinking, hey, I'm a hotshot mm. because we grew the company from three people to a thousand people, uh, which is indeed a big thing. Um, and and how do you, yeah, how do you transform such a culture? Because I assume that Colibra needs to reinvent him, herself all the time, which makes that a lot of people within your organization needs to have that kind of growth, innovative mindset. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to the point you made earlier in on, on the markets and what the investors expect, I mean, it doesn't matter what our investors ex expect in a way, because we see that there's a, at least a 10-year window of market ahead of us, and it's a big market. Despite the fact that we've been doing it for 15 years, we've created this category, we're leading it, but it's still evolving, so we have to keep leading it. And that's a massive opportunity in the market ahead of us. And our personal view, right, like myself, Felix, it's like we want to grab that market, right? This is our market. Um, so that's really important for us, and that drives us. Uh, that motivates us because we do see the opportunity. Right? We have a very good perspective with that 15-year uh, window behind us. Um, so we're seeing all of those trends in the market, and we know, okay, we got to go after them. But indeed. Um, you have to have, um, as an individual working at uh, Colibra, you do have to have the right mindset. It is not easy. I mean, for me, I've been here 15 years. So as a matter of speaking, I've seen 15 Colibras. You know, like every year, uh, it's a new company because there's a lot of new people. There's a new market you're operating in. There's a new product you're offering, uh, etc. Right? There's new players in the market, customers that have different needs. So for me, it's every year, it's... Uh, it's a new company. But um, for um, uh, people who just joined Calibra, for them, it's weird. Oh, well, we're changing like in 2022 versus 2023. And now we're planning, like we had an all hands yesterday, and we're talking about change in the all hands. So are we planning that in 2024, we will be different again? We will change again? Yes, because if we do not change, then we have not adapted ourselves to an evolving market. And if we want to keep winning, and if we want to keep growing, we need to adapt because otherwise we're not, you know, in the right configuration to grab the, the opportunity in the market. Um, 
And then that mindset is important there, right? That is that mindset has to be okay. Change can be scary, but let's you know, as individuals, lead through that change. Um, let's drive the change because we know there's better ways to you know fiddle with this little bit of, of Libra's processes or systems to make it better or more efficient. And that's a continuous exercise. I'm not saying that's easy, right? Uh, but it has to be part of our culture. And because we hire a lot of people, we, we have to keep monitoring the culture. I mean, you have to keep making sure that the culture sort of stays what it was in, in the beginning years. And DNA uh, is, is a big power of a, of a startup or a scale-up, of course. Um, so, yeah, uh, the right mindset, absolutely. So we actually, in, in, in our onboarding or enablement programs we actually you know talk about the change and things like that um and i think a big portion also uh, peter um that most people tend to overlook is that um you know apart from the continuous learning it's not because i mean when we started Calibra, we literally came out of school right so you, if you think i am I'm, I'm coming out of school i'm done learning you're thinking very wrong and you have to keep learning so uh, you learn by doing, but you also learn by studying um, relevant, you know, topics like strategic uh, innovation or digital disruption or what have you. Um, so the learning has to be there. But I think a, in a big overlooked portion is uh, how do you deal with the ego portion of it? Right? Mm-hmm. Because um, you might think if, if things go well, uh, all right, this is great. This, this is like I'm such a great guy, right? Or we're such a great team. We're just magicking this out of existence, but you know, we 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 got a lot of punches in the face in the early years. I mean, the, the beginning of Calibra is a long grinding start. You know, now people know us across the world, but in 2008, all the way to 2014 and 15, nobody knew us. I mean, we were completely unknown, and when we were knocking on doors, all we got back was a no, we don't want to talk to you kind of thing. So we got hit in the face a lot. And that helps you reflect, like, okay, maybe we got to try something different, right? Maybe we got to maybe change our responsibilities a little bit, change our organization structure, try a new strategy, what have you. Um, so you do have to make sure that you're, you know, you're not bumping against yourself in the way you will, right? You do bump against yourself. But you have to make sure that doesn't, that doesn't stop you. You, you mm-hmm. cannot let yourself stand in the way of the business. And um, this is always one thing that I uh, repeat everywhere I can, to, especially to um, younger entrepreneurs, uh, but also anyone else, right? Like, don't let your ego get in the way. Um, it usually doesn't, it usually only hurts yourself. And um, do you see a difference between Belgian uh, startup um, entrepreneurs and U.S. Uh, entrepreneurs? Because when I talk to a founder uh, of a uh, U.S. Um, startup, she said to me, there are a lot of, with, with the, the overflow of money, the last year, so VC money, there was a lot of ego involved and a lot of um, the bad masculine um, behavior. Um, and it, is there a difference that you see? Because to be honest, I mean, you were at the same conference as I was. I mean, uh, Petrian was also there from from uh, from Showpad, and we also met uh, mm-hmm. Sebastian from mm-hmm. Rosa. I mean, for me, they're all very open, humble, nice people. To be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, are you asking is there a difference between you know the you know the, the persona of a, a Belgian entrepreneur versus the persona of a US entrepreneur? Yes. Um, yeah. Lately, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think there is. I mean, there's big cultural differences. I mean, let's let's take a step back and let's consider the fact that we're all like, what's his name, Douglas Adams from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy says we're all having the perspective of somebody standing on a big ball in space that's literally spinning around its axis around the core of molten lava or iron or whatever it is, right? So that's that's literally the world we live in. But if you narrow that down to the world that a Belgian lives in, the world that an American lives in, well, you just have to look at numbers. There's an order of magnitude difference. So Belgium, what is it, about 12 million people. So in a way, that's your market. I mean, I mean I'm going to sell something to other Belgians or make software for other Belgians. Well, then you have 12 million. So that's the scale that you build for, if you will. Um, whereas if you're in the U.S., you're immediately in a market of three to 400 million people. So you're, it's literally an order of magnitude difference. And um, just being born in one versus the other 
and that's the perspective you're getting. Yes, we're all we all have the perspective of the ball flying to space. But if you grow up in a country of 12 million people, you have the perspective of a person having grown up there. If you grow up in a, um, a country of uh, 300, 400 million people, that's the perspective that you have. So immediately you bring that to the table. Now, uh, what you get as a side effect of that is if you're a founder of um, uh, a U.S. company, uh, typically the amounts of money that are available to you are higher and faster. Um, whereas if the amounts available to a Belgian person are sm typically smaller and slower. Now, that doesn't mean that immediately one will be more successful than the other. Uh, it just means you have to you have to take it into account. I mean, you, you cannot do things the same thing that an American would do it. And I think that's why, um, I mean, I lived there for four years and I love the experience. And we both have good things. I mean, I like the... Um, I like the way that the Americans, when you ask them a question, you know, can something do this? A Belgian, especially a technology person in Belgium, would more like answer like no, right? Whereas an American would more like to think, well, how can we get it to a yes? Or how can I say something that at least makes it an exciting conversation? And let's not, let's not block everything with it, no. Um, so you have that sort of uh, attitude, which is different. You have an action-oriented aspect in an American, I think. They're very driven to action a lot. Whereas in, in Belgium and Europe, it's, it's a little bit more, uh, you know, let's think about this for a moment. So a little bit slower to act, but maybe in the long run, smarter, right? Because it's not because you're, if you're action running in circles, you're also not progressing, right? Um, now, if you take then specifically the Belgian part of it, I think uh, Belgian typically there is, a, there is this type of humbleness or modestness. Um, I don't know what, where it originates from or something, but we're always a little bit more careful. We're not going to be brazen uh, like Americans. We should be a little bit more brazen, actually. But you know, as a matter of speech, they would have zero things, nothing but a slide deck, and pitch it to you as the greatest thing in the world. Whereas we would have to tinker with something for years and years until we feel like, yeah, it's getting there. And then we'd be comfortable enough to maybe talk to somebody else about it. Right? So I'm not saying that either one is good or bad, but I'm saying that we can all learn a little bit from each other. But if you look, if you look, um, if you look at it from another perspective, and um, if you look at it from the perspective of prospects and customers in in Belgium towards the US, and mm -hmm. I do, and I and it has changed, and it has certainly changed, but I still remember. Um, around 2000-ish, uh, and it still lasted until, allez, I think, in, in the third or the second wave of startups in Belgium, around the, the just after Netlog, the Showpad era, where it started mm -hmm. there. I mean, then, then the whole startup scene in Belgium become like a rock star. And to be honest, mm. rock stars, they need to learn to play the guitar. But that's a different story. But the thing I want I to mention, the point I want... The point I want to make is that um, I had lots of no's. I still remember today, even, and I'm going to say that out loud, Proximus, when which was called Belgacom, and they said, Peter, your technology, it's a small company. Now it's been acquired by a Veritas Symantec, and now it's a serious software. And I'm like, it's the same code. It just has a different color. You're going to pay four or ten times more, and you will get crappy support. And sorry to to bring it like like that, but it is a little bit exaggerated. And I was I was we were always considered as small and things like that. Whereas I would expect it a little bit. Is it because of the Leonard House Petro trauma that Belgium carried for years in terms of technology? I don't know. But in in the US, I always had more the the, the feeling that companies supported. Um, the, the the startups more like like if I look at uh, recently we just bought Busy Software which is a startup in uh, in, in in Ghent which is in like an intelligence platform for prospecting I mean I know it's a startup and and but I I feel like you you need to also like give them a chance I I know it's not going to be perfect and I know they're going to give me a big discount for that but the, has that changed also for you? Um, is, is it still for you the same in Belgium, like uh, yeah, Colibra, blah, 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 but uh, that, that, that other, the other countries were more or, or faster supportive because we have a more like late adopter um, mentality? 
Um, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack there, Peter, but let's start with the Rockstar part. Fully agree with, uh, you know, there has been this growing, uh, you know, idolization of entrepreneurs or founders. And in a way, I think that's a good thing because I think in Belgium we did we could use a little bit more push. Like, hey, it's it's okay to try and start something. It's going to be a hard road, but let's go. I mean, who knows what what grows out of it? Um, but at the same time, you want to be careful with that because not everybody really is made out to be an entrepreneur. I mean, if everybody was an entrepreneur, that wouldn't work either. Uh, so you know, the rock star thing. I don't think we have to push it. We don't have to push it much farther. Uh, my view personally is always uh, the more successful Belgian entrepreneurs, the better. That's it. Um, and um, with respect to uh, the Belgian uh, aspect, I mean, today, I think a lot of other Belgians think that Colibra is an American company. I mean, we were in the news recently with the so-called move to Amsterdam, uh, which was a whole uh, kerfuffle. Uh, but essentially, we are a Belgian company, right? We just have offices mm -hmm. all over, but we started the company in Belgium. In Belgium. Our office in Gare Maritime, beautiful office, always welcome for a visit. Um, so we are a Belgian company, but by now, after 15 years, we're a global company. What mm -hmm. I will say is that um, my experience, in my experience, especially in these earlier years, Belgians don't necessarily buy from other Belgians. Mm -hmm. I think there's a risk averseness in us uh, that you know makes it safer to buy the big American thing. You know, the, nobody's ever been fired for buying whatever, right? Rather than mm -hmm. buying from another uh, Belgian company. You know, I don't know what drives that, but it's a phenomenon that I've experienced. So very quickly, we started selling our software out of Belgium. Now, it wasn't necessarily easier there, right? But uh, like the American market, for example, is a big unified market, whereas the European market is very fragmented. I mean, yes, it's a unified market, but they're still speaking Dutch in the Netherlands and French in um, in France and uh, German in Germany, right? So, and it's not necessarily about the language, it's about the different cultures. Uh, so, I mean, we had to work equally hard in other countries. It, it, it wasn't because we went to the Netherlands and we're Belgian, they thought it was cute, so they buy from us, no. We had to work equally hard, but, you know, there were bigger markets uh, out there. Um, and uh, I think we should support a little bit uh, other Belgians. I mean, if you have somebody who's coming to you and they're, they're a Belgian startup and you're a big Belgian um, corporation and there's a value proposition there, get together and partner, right? But then it's also on the entrepreneurs to, you know, play nice and, and deliver value to those organizations. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's my view on it, uh, Peter. Hope that helps a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Now we're going to go into another direction. We're going to go more personal right now. I mean, fifteen years Colibra. If we would go back in time and we would we would uh, meet the stain um, with a little less gray hair, um, and you you could do it all over again. What would be your advice, lessons learned, failures, fuck-ups, whatever, that you look back on, I would I would have done that differently. Because I look at myself, the biggest lesson I learned were never the wins, but really went, it went all wrong. And it's, I can, yeah, it's easy to talk about this right now, but in, in, the, in the midst of the storm, it was really painful. So I, I was wondering with, with you, if you look in, in terms of reflection, what would you give your advice to your 15-year younger self professionally? Good question, Peter. Going back in time, 15 years, so where where was I? Where am I? I mean, it's a long time. I sometimes compare Colibra years with dog years. You know, um, a dog year is seven human years. Uh, so every day at Kuriba sometimes feels like a week and a week feels like a month and a month feels like a year because there's so many things happening. So you, it's like you're living multiple lives uh, in a way. So taking back 15 years and all the stories in between, I've forgotten more than I remember, obviously. Um, but I would, if I would go, be able to go back in time, first of all, I would sell a time machine because that seemed like a good business then. But uh, if I would be able to go back in time, I would uh, maybe 
maybe not say anything to myself because you have to remember that the, the journey we had along the way with all of the mistakes we've made. So I can give myself advice about every mistake, but, but some of the mistakes were actually fundamental to our success because they made us go faster or slower and the time window to the market was faster or slower. So it's not because you make a mistake along the way that you should try to avoid making that mistake. So I, if I go back in time, I would not, not necessarily tell anything to myself because I might end up or a company might end up at a different point from where we are today. And I think we're in a pretty good place today. So I, I like where we are. And we always want to do better, of course. Um, but if I would give some advice, like, you know, things that I would tell somebody else to do differently in their own journeys. Um, I'll give you one example. So, uh, for example, uh, expansion. I mean, as an entrepreneur, you're very opportunistic, right? And I have a lot of um, drive. So I was like a young dog who's chasing every tail. Um, oh, there's an opportunity there, an opportunity there, an opportunity there. Let's go there, let's go there, let's go there. And it's fine, you know, that you're young, you have energy, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, you got, you're, you're working across time zones. That's fine. Um, but then at some point in time, I had the belief, well, you know, Asia Pacific, that's also, we also have to do stuff there. So I was in New York at that time and I was working at 6 a.m. So I could connect with Europe, right? Then 9 a.m. starts opening in New York. Then 5 p.m. New York starts closing. Closing, it never closes, right? 4 a.m. most things close though. Um, but California is still busy. So you can go until 8 or 9 p.m. And then, you know, in California, they're also checking out. But lo and behold... 8 or 9 p.m. In, the, in New York time is actually morning in Australia time. So I started calling on Australia. And I was literally exhausting myself. I mean, that's not sustainable. But I was not necessarily thinking about it because I was letting my opportunistic entrepreneur drive myself a little bit too much. Um, and we have a business in the Asia Pacific, right? We have people there, a great team. Uh, but if I would, if I look at how I acted, I mean, this is even before New York, Hey, like we have to go to Asia Pacific. I think I would just ignore uh, that market altogether back then. It was way too early. Uh, I mean, it's more important uh, back then and still today for us to make sure that we win that North American market because that is the battleground upon which global software companies are built. Uh, those who win that market, those have a chance of being a global player. Those who do not win that market, I mean, we would lose 60% of our business if you didn't have that market. So that's a lot, right? Um, so that would be one advice for me is like, um, think a little bit more uh, about, you know, opportunistic and immediate action, action associated with, think a little bit more strategically about what is more important to win. Uh, so that's one thing that I've learned over um, the 15 years, next to, you know, 99 other uh, things, uh, but we could talk about that for a whole hour. Mm. I mean, a uh, last question, Stain. I mean, um, you are not doing it alone. I mean, you started the company with a couple of other co-founders. I mean, if you look at your relationship with, with the co-founders, I mean, um, friendship is, like, over time, it can evolve, can it change? I mean, how do you keep your uh, relationship with your co-founders fresh and sharp? Because you've known each other for quite some time. Um, you uh, celebrated successes. You also have been in pain. You've argue, argued a lot. I mean, if you look at the combination of, of the co-founders, what, what kind of lesson do you take there? Because I assume that you are all very complementary. Well, um, there's only two founders left in the company, myself and Felix. Uh, Felix is uh, the CEO already from the beginning, so quite an impressive feat. Um, and obviously done a good job. Uh, but there were other uh, co-founders that sort of we lost along the way inside the company. I mean, they're, they're still around, obviously. Uh, but I, if I look back at our original founding team in 2008, I wouldn't say that we were necessarily complementary uh, as much. I mean, there was complement, obviously, but there was actually insufficient complementarity because we started mm. to go to market in 2008. We had a year of preparation, actually. So we started it's actually 16 years of work that we've been doing. 
Uh, we started about three, six, nine months in. I don't even remember when, but we, Felix and I are talking like, I don't think we're going to be able to sell anything this way. I mean, we're trying hard, working hard, speaking to a lot of people, trying to build product at the same time, but we're not selling. I mean, it's very, it's a fact. You can just measure it in the number, right? Uh, and then we onboarded uh, Benny, an additional co-founder. So that, like the original founding team was missing that as, as a complementary piece for sure. And you can see that from just uh, looking at it. I mean, there was Felix, uh, um, Peter, myself, and, and uh, Damien. Uh, and all of us, I mean, I'm, I'm an engineer, uh, but all the other three were computer scientists. So we're all the same in a way, right? So, yeah, you could immediately, just from looking at it, you can immediately say, well, there's complementarity and, and skills, like in you know what somebody is good at or what somebody is be- uh, better at in the team. But we were clearly missing something. Um, now, how do you keep that fresh? Well, um, some of the, the people um, we lost along the way professionally, right? So I, with the busyness, you don't always see them as much. But Felix, we speak regularly. Uh, I mean, especially last week, we were in um, uh, London. We had our, what we call our Data Citizens on Tour event, which is like a user event. You know, always very exciting, but also very exhausting. I mean, Felix and I barely had time to talk there, maybe for 10 minutes, because every step you make, like you walk one meter, trying even just trying to get to the restroom, and somebody's already, a customer's already talking to you. Oh, I love Calibra. I have some ideas about what you should do and can do better, yada, yada, yada. So this is all fun and, and, and good and, and productive, but at the same time, it's very busy. But for example, that's a place where you then, even though, even ever so briefly, you're able to connect, or, you know, with the good weather, you just, Pop up the barbecue and, you know, you break some bread. Uh, but our chairman, Tony, um, you know, supported us from the beginning across all those years. Big part of our success, I would say, with his advice and his mirror towards these uh, young bucks, if you will. Um, he always said you have to always be able to keep talking. Uh, if you are not able to talk anymore, then you're going to have a problem. Uh, imagine you're a founding team or a management team. It doesn't matter how many people are in the company. But if you cannot talk anymore in that management meeting, then you cannot progress anymore. So you, you always have to find ways to talk. Mm. Okay, cool. Now um, we've we've met each other uh, in in real life uh, at the We Are Sales conference, um, and um, a normal engineer uh, they hate salespeople. They don't understand them. They think they're all spoiled brats with brown shoes. Um, just eating and uh, drinking. Now, super engineers like yourself embraces sales and also, also doing sales or helping sales. How did your image of sales, because sales is the engine of the company. I mean, that's where, like you said, you can have conversations, but at a, at a, at a certain point, there needs to be signed contracts and money needs to come in and this typical solution of Colibra doesn't sell itself, I assume. It's not uh, bold.com or whatever, um, or Dean Action. Um, <coughs> now, how, how does your image, that's the last question, how does your image of sales has evolved throughout the years? Because I assume you have worked closely with the sales uh, persons in your own organization. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, Benny and I were on the road prospecting, uh, for more than five years, um, where we literally we would be away from home for three weeks, you know, back for two, and then we'd be away for two, three weeks again. Uh, and not on big budgets, right? So there was room sharing and all that stuff. So obviously, there's a very rich learning experience for, for both parties. Uh, and I would say that doing that, having to do that, because otherwise you're not making money, right? Having to do that um, has given me a very different view because I now see what is necessary. Uh, so you do have that classic trope where the technical person thinks that the salespeople are liars or, you know, they're just whining and dining, right? Whatever it is. Um, and on the other side of the fence, on salespeople, there's maybe also a bit of a view like, you know, I was talking to the customer, they have this need. I said, yes, can't you guys just build it by tomorrow, right? Like, well, yeah, but we're still building the thing that was sold last week, and that's going to take us three months. So there's a, like there's a 
a mis mismatch in expectations about how fast something can, can be built. So there is this, you know, wrong perspective on both sides. But I think smart, responsible uh, adult people learn to respect each other's profession. I mean, the salespeople, if they would not be successful at their job, however it is that they do their job, and it's complicated because in a way they're programming people, right? Especially in large organizations, it's like trying to herd cats sometimes because those large organizations have a way of, you know, uh, step, stepping on each other's toes and tripping over their own feet sometimes. So the, the salespeople really has to almost like help like a champion throughout the organization sometimes. And that's complicated. I mean, there's a lot of fog of war involved. Um, and, um, you know, so I think there has to be respect from the engineer that they're doing a hard job. Uh, they're making it look easy, maybe, right? Because that's maybe the type of people that they are. Uh, but they're bringing in the money. If they wouldn't do that, then, you know, there's no salary for you to pay. Mm. On the other side, if the engineers are not making product, there's nothing to sell either. So I think in, in, in a responsible adult mindset, there is respect to one another. Uh, yeah. And if you resort to those, you know, caricatures of each other, I don't think you're going to have a healthy relationship. Yeah, that's an, an amazing answer. Stein, I want to thank you for the energy, for your time. Uh, it was uh, very inspiring to, to hear you talk. And uh, I wish you all the best and great success with Colibra. And I hope within 10 years you make that big exit and um, I don't know, you can sit on the beach or whatever. Uh, I don't know what you want to do within 10 years. Um, I think if I stop working, I die, Peter. So um, I'll uh, sit on the beach the day before I die then. Uh, I think this is 10 years of opportunity in the market. But by then, uh, we might see another mountain of opportunity that is even higher. Because that's what happens if you grow, you're climbing the mountain, and then you're getting a new perspective and you realize, oh, there's more opportunity yet. Let's go get it. So that's always our focus. But thanks for having me over. Thanks for asking me uh, very smart questions in smart ways. Uh, it was fun meeting you face-to-face -face at the VR sales event. Great event, by the way. And it was fun doing this podcast. Have a nice day and stay frosty. Hey, it's Peter here. Thanks a lot for listening to What's On Your Mind. Looking forward to your opinions and comments. And don't forget to subscribe on psgrow.com and leave your email address to stay tuned for future episodes. Bye!